The God of the Bible is a God of freedom. When his people Israel were enslaved in Egypt, God stepped in and rescued them. We call this event the Exodus. The word literally means exit. It's the way out, it's liberation. Even though Israel's Exodus happened a long time ago, the event has inspired freedom movements ever since. Here in London, the famous politician William Wilberforce, along with others, took the Exodus theme of liberation and applied it to the slave trade. After decades of struggle, slavery was legally abolished right here in Parliament in 1833. In the 20th century, the Exodus story energised Martin Luther King's dream of a world without racial divisions. In one of his speeches, he declared, The Bible tells the thrilling story of how Moses stood in Pharaoh's court and cried, Let my people go. On April the 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated, but the story of Exodus and liberation lives on. Why? Because in our modern world, there are more slaves than ever before. An estimated 27 million people are bought, sold and trafficked across the globe, with a new victim every 30 seconds. This lucrative trade in human flesh is estimated to be worth $150 billion a year, yet currently only 1% of victims experience exodus. Wherever there is oppression, the God of Exodus roars, let my people go, and calls us to play our part in the story. So let's be inspired to action by the chain-snapping, shackle-breaking, slave-rescuing God of the Bible. Welcome to session three, Exodus and the Promised Land. So today we pick up with the second book of the Bible simply called Exodus and it's important to see where this one fits in to the big picture of the Bible story. In Genesis we saw that after global events, creation, the fall of humanity, the flood, the Tower of Babel, God called Abraham and promised that through his descendants hope would come to the world. Abraham then had the miracle child Isaac, Isaac had the twins Esau and Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons who formed the 12 tribes of Israel. Now one of them, Joseph, was sold as a slave down to Egypt. So to cut a long story short, the rest of Jacob's family then moved down to join him as the storyline of the Bible goes down from Canaan to Egypt. But after 400 years, Israel was becoming so numerous that the Egyptian pharaoh considered them a threat to national security. His response? To enslave them in labour camps, building his pyramids and palaces. And this is where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 2. Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God remembered. Now, what does that mean? Well, not that he ever forgot, but now these poor slaves are in the forefront of God's mind. He cares about them and he is going to act decisively to save them. 
Now, when life is tough, it's easy for us to think that God's forgotten us. But remember, behind the scenes, God is lining up the help that we need. Exodus tells us God knows, God remembers, God cares. So, onto the stage enters one of the key characters of the whole Bible story, Moses. And tradition has it that Moses was the one who compiled the first five books of the Bible. Along with Genesis and Exodus, they also include Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And together these are called the Torah, which is often translated law, but really means instruction or guidance. These five books will be foundational to the rest of the Bible. And as we've seen in our daily readings this week, Moses was born into a context of genocide. The Pharaoh of his day decided to curb Israel's growth by killing every male Hebrew baby. Moses' mum didn't know what to do, so she made a waterproof basket and floated Moses down the River Nile in it. Ever since, parents have placed their babies in Moses' baskets and probably at times dreamt of floating them away as well. Anyway, the basket floated right up to the princess of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter. She took pity on Moses, even though he was clearly a circumcised Israelite. So she took him into the palace, adopted him into the royal family, and Moses grew up prince of Egypt. But one day, a now adult Moses witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. He saw red. He killed the Egyptian and then fled into the wilderness. So Moses ended up in a pretty bleak place called Horeb. It must have felt pretty horrible for Mo. But remember, the God of the Bible is into recycling. He can take screwed up lives and transform them. In Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush and calls him to play the lead role in the unfolding drama of Exodus. Who would have thought it? If you'd known Moses in his horrible years, you would have concluded, if God can use him, he can use anyone. And that's the point. So out in the middle of nowhere, Moses sees a burning bush. Now, in the hot, arid wilderness, that was not such an unusual sight. But this bush got Moses' attention. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Understandably, Moses was shocked and frightened. Panicking and stalling for time, he asked God, So, um, what's your name? And God's reply is highly revealing. You see, to know someone's title is one thing. Mr, Mrs, Reverend, Doctor. And that's really all the word God is, a title. But to know someone's personal name introduces a whole new level of trust in the relationship. So what's God's personal name? Well, it's a strange one. God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
and he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the eternal God speaking. He does not combust or rust. He has no past or future. He's the great I am. Now remember, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, I am roughly equates to Yahweh. So if you hear someone refer to Yahweh or Jehovah, they're using the divine name God gave to Moses at the bush. Now this name was so sacred that Jews would not dare to speak it. So they replaced it with Lord instead. Now on almost every page of the Old Testament, you'll see Lord in capital letters. Why has someone left the caps lock on? Well, because beneath that word lies the sacred name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. And so, of course, when early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, it was massive. They were claiming that the God who appeared to Moses had now appeared in person, not in a bush, but in the flesh. So Moses returned to Egypt on a liberation mission. He announced to Pharaoh that the God of Israel says, let my people go. Pharaoh was not impressed and refused. So a showdown unfolded. The God of Israel brought 10 plagues, each one an affront to the gods of Egypt. For example, the Egyptians worshipped the God of the Nile. So the first plague turned the Nile into blood. There was also an Egyptian sun god. So the ninth plague brought darkness on the land. The key issue at stake, who is the real God? And as Pharaoh refused to give in, Moses announced the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn male. Now, in a patriarchal culture where continuing the family lineage meant everything, this tenth plague cut to the heart and broke Pharaoh. So he finally let the Hebrew slaves go. Israel moved out of Egypt after centuries of slavery, free at last, only not quite. Pharaoh changed his mind, chased after them and trapped them by the shore of the Red Sea. But once again, God stepped in and made a way for his people, parting the waters. This is the God who can make a way where there seems to be no way. And Israel passed through and were delivered free at last. Now from the other side of the Red Sea, looking back to their former life of slavery, Israel celebrated by singing songs and telling the story of Exodus. Singing is such a powerful way to express freedom. As birds sing after the storm, so Moses and his sister Miriam burst into song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is the first song in the whole Bible, and the first of many. 
singing has always been a powerful way for God's people to celebrate freedom. In fact, the Exodus story then inspired a whole genre of music as Afro-American slaves wrote songs of hope in the face of oppression. The most famous spiritual was called Go Down Moses, and it included the Exodus refrain, Let my people go. Now today, when we face fears and challenges, songs can be a powerful response. Put on some music and sing hope over your circumstances and you'll soon find the atmosphere changes. You know, life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to sing in the rain. Now, as well as songs, the Exodus was celebrated through a meal. When God sent the final plague to Egypt, it did not affect the Israelites' homes because God told them to take a spotless lamb, sacrifice it and paste its blood onto their doors with a hyssop branch. Now, hold that thought. When the angel of death passed through the camp, he passed over the houses protected by the blood. Hence the name Passover. Now, every year since, Jewish families share a meal with symbolic foods that tell this story. Flatbread or matzo symbolizes their rush departure from Egypt without time even to let the dough rise. Then there were bitter herbs and salt water for the tears and pain of slavery. Four cups of wine structured the meal with readings and prayers. And of course, the lamb was central, symbolizing the sacrifice that enabled salvation. Now, just before his death, Jesus celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples. But in a shocking moment, he reinterpreted the whole thing. Now he was the spotless lamb of God, sacrificed for us. When he died on the cross, Wine vinegar was lifted to him on, guess what, a hyssop branch. As we'll see, the death of Christ is the ultimate exodus event. The New Testament puts it this way. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Christians still take these two symbols from the original Passover meal. The bread remembers the body of Christ, broken for us, and the cup remembers Jesus' blood, through him, we can experience the true exodus of forgiveness and freedom. So after singing songs and telling the story, Israel set off into the wilderness. You can see the rough route that they took from Egypt through the Red Sea, and then they traveled down the Sinai Peninsula. Now, this pilgrim people were led by a cloud and pillar of fire. They drank water that poured from a rock and ate some strange food called manna. And eventually they arrived at the foot of a mountain, not any old mountain, but the same one where God appeared to Moses in that burning bush. From now on, this mountain, Mount Sinai or Horeb, will be known as the mountain of God. Moses had brought Israel back to the very place where God first called him. He had completed part one of Mission Impossible.
So that's the story of Exodus. Israel delivered from slavery in Egypt and brought to the very same mountain where God first called Moses into the action. So let's reflect on that burning bush scene in Exodus chapter three. Here we encounter God's fiery passion to bring freedom to the captives. And here the great I am invites us to be part of the mission. If you'd asked an Israelite at Mount Sinai, do you know God? I think they'd have said, nope, but I know a man who does. Only Moses met with God. The rest of Israel cowered at the bottom of the mountain. So Moses, the mediator, bridged the divide between God and his people. But on Mount Sinai, God gave three gifts to enable relationship with all Israel, the law, the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And as we'll see in this second half of the session, each one points forward to Jesus and the New Testament. Firstly then, the law. This was God's way of saying, I care about you. Now notice the order here, it's really important. God first delivered Israel from Egypt and only then gave them the law. So the law was never a means of salvation, but a way of being blessed within the covenant. You may have thought that Christianity was all about trying to be good enough for God so that he'll love you. It doesn't work like that. It never has. When Israel was trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, Moses simply told them, stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. That's salvation. It's all about what God does for us, not what we do for him. It's faith, not works. So for us, simply by believing in Jesus, we're saved and adopted into God's family. And only then as sons and daughters are we given the house rules so that we can live safe and free. Now, without doubt, the most famous laws ever written are the Ten Commandments recorded in Exodus and also here in Deuteronomy. Here's a condensed summary of those 10 commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make any graven image. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. These commandments were a brilliant guide for former slaves to live out their freedom. Imagine if we all kept these commandments. No locks or keys, crime or prisons, family breakdown or rebellious teenagers. The Ten Commandments are a basic moral code for the good of all humanity. Now in our front garden, there's a line. And if our children cross the line, 
We shout at them and impose severe sanctions, like a whole day without the iPad. Now that might sound harsh, but put it in its context. The other side of that line is a busy road. It's because we love them that we lay down the law. The Ten Commandments are God's way of saying, I care about you. Now, as a nation of ex-slaves, Israel also needed further details for life in a wilderness context. Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy contain lots more laws that can seem a bit bizarre to us. So how should we interpret these Old Testament laws today? Well, I find it helps to apply a bit of a filter. There are three basic categories. Firstly, civil laws. Some laws were given to help Israel function as a new nation. But today, God's people are no longer a political state. So these civil laws are not the law of the land for us. However, they still contain transferable wisdom. For example, in Deuteronomy, houses had to have a low wall built around the edge of the roof because these houses had flat roofs for extra living space. The wall was so that children didn't fall off the roof. In other words, it's basic health and safety that we still apply today. Then secondly, ceremonial laws. These included food laws and rituals, including some very personal instructions about cleansing from skin diseases and bodily fluids. Now, the key here is that in the Old Testament, holiness was expressed physically. So washing rituals symbolized the importance of clean living. Now, we live in a different chapter of the Bible story. What was external has become an internal reality. We don't need to perform cleansing rituals because Jesus has made us clean on the inside. So when we read these laws, we should sigh with relief. Jesus has sorted it for us. But then finally, moral law, summed up by the Ten Commandments. These transcend race or culture and give a universal guide for living God's way. Now, Jesus came not to abolish these laws, but to help us to fulfill them. For example, in one of his sermons, he declared, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus's teaching goes beyond the letter of the law to fulfill the spirit of it. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can live this life of freedom now. When I go mountain climbing, I start the day carrying a heavy rucksack. But as I stop to eat and drink, what was a burden on my back becomes a new energy inside. That's the shift from the old covenant to the new covenant. The moral law felt like a burden to Israel, but now the Holy Spirit gives us new energy to live a life of purity and freedom. So when reading Old Testament laws, it's helpful to think, are these civil laws, ceremonial laws or moral laws? And how might that affect the way that these apply to us today? Now, the second great gift 
that God gave at Mount Sinai was instructions for a special tent. This was God's way of saying, I'm with you. Now remember at this point in Israel's history, everyone's camping. There are nomadic people. So God effectively says to Moses, build me a tent. I'm going to camp with you. Tabernacle just means place of residence. This is where God lives, right in the middle of the camp. As you got up in the morning and looked out of your tent, you saw this tent and were reminded, God is with us. Now, of course, you would expect God's tent to be a bit different. There was a perimeter fence to guard this holy site. And then inside was a courtyard with an altar for sacrifices. Then there was the actual tent, which, like many modern designs, had an outer and an inner section. And the furniture in the tent symbolised three great promises. Firstly, provision. There was a table with 12 loaves of bread on it. As a reminder, God always provides for his people. Secondly, protection. A golden lampstand or menorah continually burned, symbolising God's watchful eye over his people. And thirdly, presence. A thick curtain blocked the way into the most holy place. This was God's room. It contained a wooden chest called the Ark, in which were the tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. This Ark was a visible sign of God's presence. So this tabernacle was God's way of saying, I'm with you. It brought peace to the Israelites as they passed through the scary wilderness, knowing that God was with them. Now on our journey through life, it can make all the difference to know God is with us. Sometimes our kids wake up in the night a bit scared. And as a less experienced parent, I used to try and reason with them. You know, what are you worried about? There's no monster under the bed. Don't be silly. But I've since realised that all they need to know is that I'm with them. It's my presence that brings peace. The Holy Spirit is God with us. His presence in our lives can deliver us from fear and bring deep and lasting peace. Now, the third gift might seem strange. Most of us live in societies where animal sacrifice no longer occurs. But far from being a negative thing, for Israel, sacrifices were a comforting sign that God forgives. Now, there was a whole system of sacrifices recorded in Leviticus. But as we've seen in our daily readings this week, once a year, it was all summed up on the Day of Atonement. All Israel would assemble outside the tabernacle and then the high priest would take two young goats that were spotless. One of them he would offer as a sacrifice and then sprinkle some of its blood over the people representing the perfect life of the sacrifice covering their sins. Now remember, the Israelites are camping. They don't have a whole wardrobe of clothes and blood stains are hard to shift. So for the rest of the year, they had red marks on their clothes as a permanent sign from God, I forgive you, you've been paid for, you've been atoned for. Now by the New Testament, it becomes clear that animal sacrifice was only ever a sign pointing forwards to Jesus. 
Only the blood of Jesus can truly cleanse us from sins. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now with the second goat, the priest would place his hands on its head as a sign of transference, all the sins of the people passing to the goat. Then the priest would lead the goat to the edge of the camp and shoo it out into the wilderness. As the people watched it go and disappear over the horizon, they could say, there goes my sin, taken away. And that's the idea of a scapegoat. And that's why John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and cried, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the cross, Jesus became our scapegoat. Now God can say to us, I forgive you. You've been paid for. So instead of being trapped in guilt and shame, we can be cleansed and set free through Jesus. Today, we can experience true exodus. As a young girl, I had no idea what a relationship should look like. So the first boy, I guess, who showed me any interest, it just blew my mind. But it was very, very violent. It was very wrong on every level. But I didn't know any different. And any kind of love or what was perceived as love, I welcomed with open arms. So although I was enslaved by pornography and by sex that's supposed to be love it wasn't I didn't know I was until much later on and that was through finding God that was through questioning God that was through arguing with God through exploring through coming to church through reading the Bible I became clean I, <laughs> One thing that I do remember, and I think is true, that when you read the Bible, the Bible reads you. And then you start looking at you and you realize, and I realized, I, I'm not that person. This story is not me. It was then, but it's not anymore. And God has made me beautiful. My life has not perhaps been beautiful, but I know he has made me clean inside and I'm no longer a slave to any of that, to nothing. I'm free. Now with these three gifts from God, the law, the tabernacle and the sacrifices, Israel broke camp and set off for the promised land. After a long time camping, they were finally going home. Now from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land should have been an 11 day journey. It ended up taking just over 40 years. <laughs> now you can't blame that on the sat-nav, so what happened? Well, Israel arrived on the brink of the land and sent spies in to check it out. 
they came back with a mixed report. On the one hand, they brought clusters of grapes so large it took two men to carry them. These big grapes showed the abundance of this promised land. But they also reported big giants in the land. Now, isn't that life? God promises great things, but we also face giant-sized challenges. Now, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, were full of faith. They said, the Lord is with us. We can do this. But the rest spread fear through the camp. So Israel slammed their story into reverse and headed back into the wilderness, where they wandered for 40 years. Now, this moment illustrates the stark contrast between fear and faith. Fear loses sight of God and concludes, I can't do it. The equation becomes, me on my own is less than the challenges I face. So we turn back and give up. But faith puts God into the equation and concludes, if God is for us, who can be against us? The great I am is greater than all the challenges we face put together. I wonder what giants you're facing right now. It's okay to feel some fear, but let's not give into it and leave God out of the equation. Do the maths. If God is for us, let's step out in faith. That's the way of Exodus freedom. So eventually, 40 years later than planned, the next generation of Israelites finally crossed the Jordan and entered the promised land. They were led by Moses's successor, Joshua. And it just so happens that Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent of the name Jesus. Now, Jesus is our Joshua, our deliverer. He has come to set us free and to lead us home to the promised land. So as we step back from the Exodus story, we glimpse the big picture, the Passover lamb, the parting of the seas, the law, the tabernacle, all those sacrifices, they point forward to the ultimate Exodus. Now through Jesus, we can experience true liberation. Israel's slavery was more obvious and physical, but we can be just as trapped on the inside, imprisoned by fear, anxiety, guilt, shame, anger, bitterness, habits and addictions. And that's why he came, that's why he died, so that we can experience exodus and come home to God. In John's Gospel, Jesus warns everyone who sins becomes a slave to sin. But God's Son then makes a stunning promise. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. As the message translation puts it, you will be free through and through. So let's use this verse to reflect on this session and the promise of true exodus through Jesus. Jesus.